You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The first universities and all universities for some centuries were Christian schools. Standing in relationship with, but not identical to, the church, these colleges, communities of those who read together, stood as living testimony to Christians' devotion to learning of all sorts. But Christians emerging from the 21st century academy into our generation's Christian colleges and seminaries and universities sometimes have had small occasion to think rigorously about what it means for Christians to teach and learn. Dr. Michael Lawson of Dallas Theological Seminary seeks to address that inquiry gap with his 2015 book, The Professor's Puzzle, from B&H Academic. He's here to talk with us today about the Christian professor's life, and Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled to have him on the show. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lawson. Well, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, I'm going to begin with a statement from your introduction. Quote, Christian education is not merely public education with a devotion plopped on top, end quote. Historically and socially speaking, what has happened in Christian education that you had to write that statement, and how do those realities rate to, relate to the book more broadly? I'm not sure how long you want this answer to be, but if you're looking back in history, we could go back to perhaps the 1600s where the notion of, of uh, Christian education probably was best personified by a man by the name of John Amos Comenius. And his view was promoted in the Pansophic. In essence, what he was proposing was that all knowledge could be placed in a container of some kind. You could draw a circle around it. And it involved everything from the spiritual to the actual to our everyday uh, life. So there was nothing, there was no bifurcation of knowledge. The Enlightenment changed that. Uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, we began to think in different terms. We began to think that uh, there was an area of knowledge that could be verified by observation and uh, scientific investigation. And then there was an area of knowledge that could not be verified, could only be taken by faith. And the, the history of that and what it's done to education is, is quite remarkable so that ultimately we, we ended up with an education system that said um, you could study English or, or a language, uh, history, mathematics, uh, without any reference to God whatsoever. Uh, but when you came to studying God, you would go to a Bible uh, study or you would go to a seminary or something like that. Well, Christians ultimately got, I think, tired of of that approach, and they said, well, we're going to have our own Christian education. We're not going to have that. But unfortunately, in many cases, what they set up was uh, a school in which their people that taught the languages or history or math had a degree in that, but it was from the secular point of view. So they taught math without any reference to its origin in God. They taught language without its any reference to its uh, reference to to its origin in God. In fact, they taught all the regular subjects except for Bible and theology without uh, referring to God. So we had basically Christian schools, both um, primary, secondary, and uh, um, uh, postgraduate studies uh, dealing with 
kind of a secular Christian approach to education. And that is just not true. Um, if we have a God who has created everything, then all of the sciences, all of the humanities, all of our understanding of theology uh, has to be brought into every course. It cannot be bifurcated like that. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me, I, and for some reason I thought of this when I was reading your, your uh, introduction to this book, that it, it runs sort of parallel to the way that people pray before football games. It's not as if the game changes at all because you prayed before it, uh, but people feel better if you do. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. And I, I, I love, you know, there's a, there's a side to all of this that's it's, it's humorous and enjoyable, but it's, it's, it's kind of weird. The, the, the players that score a touchdown and, and he acknowledges God, um, you know, he points his finger to heaven or he performs the sign of the cross or whatever it is as though God, God is helping us win this game. Uh, I, I think if that's how it's taken, it's probably an error. Yeah. If he is saying, thank you, God, uh, for letting me do this, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you. If that's what he's saying, then it probably is pretty accurate. But you never know really what's, what the young man is doing or what he's saying in those contexts. Right, right. And, and coming from Indiana, of course, there's the story that's probably apocryphal of uh, – Steve Alford coming to Bobby Knight before a game and saying, can we pray before the game, Coach? And Coach Knight says, Steve, uh, I got two questions for you. One, do you think God cares who wins this basketball game? And two, if he does, do you think he's rooting for me? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we, we can talk basketball later. But I, I want to talk a little bit about intellectual backgrounds because a, a big chunk of this book uh, features some broad philosophical questions and some related questions governing educational practice. And you, you make the claim, and I think it's a reasonable claim, that teachers and institutions should pose these questions every time we start a semester, in the middle of semesters, these questions should always be before us. What stands to improve if we pay heed to such questions? To me, uh, the key to the teaching learning process as it, as it involves a professor is that the, the professor is is growing and is balanced. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that m a lot of our education is so compartmentalized that we become a very uh, narrow specialist and we have not thought broadly about the implications of our education. Uh, in, in my own experience, just a few times I have bumped into someone who was broadly educated, uh, had this in my PhD at Oklahoma University, and this man had decided that he would read four hours every day, <laughs> um, which he did, which meant he didn't have as much time for students as I would have preferred. But uh, if you wanted to discuss Renaissance paintings or um, ancient religion or uh, tribal practices in Mexico, he probably had read about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think from a Christian point of view, if we have these kinds of questions in front of us, we will tend to give more balanced answers. We, uh, what, what bothers me is that as Christians, sometimes we give a pretty glib answer uh, to education. I had a man tell me one time that the problem with public education today 
is all the fault of John Dewey. I thought, well, <laughs> you know, um, actually, I wrote my dissertation was partly half of it was on John Dewey. And I said, well, you know, which which books have you read by John Dewey? Well, he hadn't read any of them. I thought, well, golly, it'd be pretty hard to trace the history of the American education problem back to John Dewey when you haven't read anything right, right. by him. And I think sometimes Christians do that kind of thing. And, and, and so we condemn parts of education or we make value judgments about education uh, when we really have not looked at the, the whole spectrum, all the questions that are involved in, in education. I think, secondly, institutions, if, if institutions took it seriously, they would look at their hires um, a little differently. I think they would want to have some diversity in the training. Uh, just thinking in, in my own field, say, in, in seminary education, uh, you can come through and major in Greek New Testament, get a master's degree, uh, get a Ph.D. in Greek New Testament, and not have had a single course in sociology anywhere, um, not had anything in the history of governments, uh, certainly not a course on teaching. Uh, and uh, so I think we would do ourselves a favor if our professors were more broadly based because ultimately the product that we're looking for in our students is to have an educated student, not just someone who has technical skill. Uh, we, we really want as Christians to have a broad-based education. Now let me pose this question to you. Uh, do you could you envision a, a scenario where Christian colleges, you know, sort of as a coalition, uh, decide that, you know, we as a group are going to start advertising for and hiring those broadly based learners, those broadly based teachers, uh, do you think that could make a change in the way that the academic job market operates? Oh, yeah, I think it would. Uh, I think it would. I think it would put, put uh, people on notice that just being highly skilled in a, in a particular specialty uh, is is not a, a really the, the best kind of skill. Yes, we want to be good in our specialties, but but we really want to be educated people, not mm -hmm. uh, not just technicians. Well, very good. Well, you talk a little bit about uh, temptations in the curriculum, and you talk about one of them that I think you're right about, and I want to ask you about it and its counterpart. In the opening chapter, you say that too much that students used to encounter in college, they now encounter when they are high schoolers or even in lower grades. What do you make of the common complaint that I hear, at least among my colleagues, that on the other hand, colleges could once assume certain high school background that now we have to teach at the college level? Well, um, if, you, if you look at the, the broad educational spectrum across the United States, they're really, you know, we talk about Common Core, but uh, in terms of, of standardized education, uh, just the whole notion of it, what are, are we all reading the same books? No, we're not reading the same books. Um, and, and secondly, 
we the, the assumption is if you pass a course with a passing grade that that means that you have some general control of that material that was talked about or provided in the textbook well you and i both know that's just nonsense mm-hmm. uh, i can't even tell you how many courses i passed because i crammed stuff in the very last minute and dashed in before it all spilled out and got as much of it as i could on the paper for the exam and then forgot it just, right you know I, I had no reason to retain it uh the only reason i was memorizing it in the first place was just to pass the course so we, we, we bring them up through grade school, high school, and these kids have no reason to retain this. There's not, it, it, they're not told why they have to learn it. They're just told that they have to learn it. So consequently, they don't retain it. And so they come into college, and they didn't get it. Now, they may have to go back and pick it up uh, in order to do their college work, um, but they, they, they just pass courses. And so that's, that's not helping them figure out do they really have an education um so i think that's at least part of the the problem i would say that they're they're uh if i could change something fundamentally in in what we're doing uh in terms of bringing students high school students uh along so that they're really ready it would be to have help them try to read with comprehension and to write well Mm-hmm. Uh, to write their thoughts. With, uh, uh, as you know, I, I, I looked a little bit at your Vita, and, and uh, you are uh, in the English department, so you understand how significant uh, language acquisition and, and the utilization of language is uh, in terms of, of its importance to an educated person. And I don't think we, we give quite enough attention to that. Right. And, I, and honestly, I think that part of that picture goes back to the 19th century when rhetoric stopped being the culmination of an undergraduate education and became sort of a hurdle that you cleared so you got to the real stuff. Uh, I, I think that a lot of things that I try to do in a freshman comp class, I have to push probably harder than a lot of the students are ready for that might be ready in a couple of years beyond that. I don't know. I that that's something I give a, a good deal of thought to. That maybe freshman comp was a mistake historically. <laughs> no, we, I think you need to still have freshman comp. Um, uh, but I I think that we you know we just have to adjust to the reality, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's I think in our just to speak of our institution, we we complain about the way students enter and they you know they should have a bible college education or this or that and the other thing well uh, you know there's just not a lot you can do about it mm-hmm. deal with the fact that here are the ones that are coming in this is what you got to work with and you got to take them from where they are and you got to move them forward right that, that's uh, a, that's a good way to approach things i think <laughs> Well, you argue that this generation's teachers owe the next generation a more integrated version of education than what our graduate educations gave us. Now, there's a world full of endeavors on which we could expend our intellectual energy. We've already mentioned a few of them. Among all of those things that we could spend our energy on, why is integration so important? I, I do argue strongly for this. And, and uh, as you know, in, uh, in Christian circles, Right now, this is a common uh, topic. This is not going to go away. Uh, we have we have become conscious of it, 
it's been around for a long time. It's just that it, we're becoming, it's, it's getting a little more press coverage, I suppose. Uh, but it seems to me if, if, if we are going to do our job properly, you, me, and, and everybody in the teaching profession who is a Christian, we are really ambassadors of the great king. <laughs> and, okay, I'm teaching some specialized, okay, let's say I'm teaching a, a session on, on testing. Fine, that's great teaching a session on testing. But as a person, I am representing him. Uh, and if I reflect this as though testing were created in a vacuum of some kind and it had no connection back to theology, uh, then I have misrepresented my king and I have misrepresented the subject because it does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, it is connected. So we, we just haven't really spent very much time on that. And we have bought into what I call the university model of education, which is a highly specialized and compartmentalized form of education, which is subject oriented. So I, yeah, I pass that subject, but I don't know how that subject relates to any other subject that I'm taking. So it, it creates a problem for the student because he's just got a bunch of details, doesn't really have uh, the whole picture, how the whole picture comes together. Right, right. Well, on that same note, you you also argue that seminaries, and of course you are a seminary professor, tend to neglect the sciences and the broader humanities in favor of a relatively narrow focus on biblical scholarship and systematic theology. Take a moment to imagine for us a seminary education that takes that general education and general revelation more seriously. Yes, um, that would be a that would be quite a wonderful environment to be in. I think it was the I think it was the vision originally of many uh, schools like Wheaton, um, and there probably are others. Your school may be one. I, I don't know what the history of it is. Yeah, we're a Christian liberal arts undergrad institution. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But when when we when the minute that we say Christian liberal arts all in one sentence. What we're saying is that everything is fundamentally integrated uh, back to its, its origin, that, and the students are able to trace it. Uh, they, they know that, that whether they're studying history, language, mathematics, science, whatever, sociology, whatever it is, it has its ultimate origin in the creator. And so when they come away from their broad-based education, they have a notion of theology in which God is involved with everything, and now we are going to look more, maybe more particularly, at how he has revealed himself in the Bible. Uh, but that certainly is not the only place that he has revealed himself. Conversely, when you come to seminary, it's as though none of the other education really counts. What's really important is what's in the Bible, as though the Bible was the only place that God revealed himself. Well, we know from Romans 1 that's not true. Mm -hmm. But we haven't really we haven't really wrestled with how to pull all of that together. How professors themselves could be uh, more integrated as persons, and how the courses could uh, integrate with one another. Uh, we we I don't know what it's like in your school, but we have departments that uh, stand as little silos. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, our, our department is, and it's, it's us four, no more. And, uh, you know, and, and God help us if we go into a curriculum review and anybody challenges the hours we have in our department, oh my goodness. Uh, we haven't really taken a broad view of, of how the whole over whole education lays out. Mm -hmm. uh, and and w when your student walks out of the uh, halls of your school, do they have a balanced view of God that that they will that they will meet Him in their day to day experience, and they will also meet Him in their encounters with Him in His Word? Well, that that's a different point of view. Mm -hmm. And that that what you're describing it's fascinating because we're actually in the process of trying to develop uh, an honors program curriculum that ties together all of those things you were just naming. So tying together the history of psychology with history, with literature, with philosophy, and so on and so forth. And, you know, asking questions like, uh, how does the medieval confession manual, where they were examining very carefully what it means to confess a sin, how does that tie into modern psychology? Things like that. I mean, so it, it's fascinating that, you know, we are making an attempt to do that. I don't know how well we're doing it. That remains to be seen, but uh, it's, it's definitely a project that I resonated with when I saw it in your book. Well, I think, uh, honestly, what students need to see in us is that we're making this attempt. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, we, we've come away from a, an era when basically our approach was just purely propositional and you believe it, write it down, it'll be on the test. <laughs> um, and I think that across the board, I mean, I see it in, in schools of, of various denominations where we're starting to say, wait, 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 we need to be a part of this conversation and we need to bring our students into the conversation so that they understand that we are actually having a conversation about this kind of an issue. Mm -hmm. Well, let's keep imagining here for a moment because another one of your proposals that once again just resonated strongly with me is that you want to help students learn affectively and to develop character as well as gaining new conceptual vocabularies. What would professors have to change to start striving for that kind of three-dimensional transformation? That's a great, that's a great question. And, uh, uh, it seems to me that what we what we did, and maybe maybe I'm reflecting what was done to me, <laughs> was that I, I learned a lot of Bible content. I learned the facts, the stories, etc. As I came through my seminary education, but we did not stop long enough to deal with what values or attitudes is that story, is that proposition addressing. When I went back and I began to teach, I began to look at, okay, obviously Jesus is the master teacher, so what did he do? Uh, the easiest place to trace it is like in Luke's gospel. You can come to Luke chapter 18, for example. And uh, in that chapter, you'll find three or four different times when Jesus will tell a story or he will do something, and Luke will add the comment, he did this in order to teach something specific. And he does teach it, and it's about an attitude. Mm -hmm. So he is connecting the content of the, the material that he's working with to a various attitude. 
Now, let me, let me come at this from a totally different perspective. Hold that thought and then come at a discussion, for example, that Andrew Walls brings to his understanding of what we've done to theology. Andrew Walls says that Western theology took a turn and it defined, it, it, it basically, uh, its focus was on, on better definitions. That, that the point of theology is to, is to come up with accurate definitions and the mother tongue of that was Latin. Right. Which is curious because we don't use Latin today as, as you know, it's either German or English, uh, the defining languages of, of theology today. But he, he counters that. He says theology is about making better decisions. Mm-hmm. What? Okay, you're teaching something. What, what decisions, what kind of attitude changes, what kind of value structures are addressed in what you're teaching? Uh, does, this, does this alter your, your notions of what's important and, and how you will make your choices? We always make our choices based on our true value system. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have asked me oftentimes, well, how do I know what my values are? I said, oh, it's just simple. Uh, give me your calendar and give me your checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I can see how you spend your money, if I can see how you spend your time, I can tell you what your values are. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy. But we we really do not spend very much time reflecting on, okay, what decisions am I going to make differently based upon this information? So I think we have to think totally differently about the structure of our content and where it takes our students. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of uh, Edward Farley's book, the- Theologia. Uh, yeah. it, it is dry as a bone, but his central point is a good one that theological education at its roots is precisely what you're talking about, is about forming the sorts of pre- people who become faithful disciples and that, you know, when it his argument, and I, th- I think it holds, is that you know it's really when the medieval church recovers the text of Aristotle, and you have to make a distinction between whatever Aristotle was doing and then whatever Albert the Great was doing. <laughs> yeah. That we that we even distinguish between theology and philosophy. Uh, yeah. That before that, you know, um, philosophy was simply a disposition of soul towards wisdom. Theology was a disposition of soul towards God. I mean, do you think that thesis, I mean, resonates with what you're doing? Because I think it might. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, in, in fact, the wisdom literature points us in that direction. I mean, mm-hmm. God God encourages us to seek after wisdom, but it, under his umbrella. You know, right. wisdom that doesn't find its anchor in God is no wisdom at all. Uh, you know, that's just cotton candy. You're just spinning that out of your own head. So uh, the the wisdom part is is extremely important, uh, and and we ought to be those who are thoughtful uh, in our approaches to everything we're called upon to do. Mm-hmm. And actually, now that I think about it, I just I just looked on my bookshelf, and one of my books talked to me. Uh, Pierre Hadot's little book, uh, "What Is Ancient Philosophy," makes a very similar claim that it's only when Aristotle is recovered, and you have to distinguish between the stuff that was written and isn't being worked on anymore versus the stuff that people are still working on that you start to get separate subject matters there that before that, that, that was the philosophy point I was making earlier. It was Farley that made the theology point, but they fit together nicely, I think. 
but let me let me turn towards some of the actual practices of education that you treat in this book because it's not all conceptual questions although i think that is definitely a strong segment of the book your chapter on course design starts with the concept that i've been relaying to new faculty at my own college for years now namely designing a course backwards uh tell our listeners what tell our listeners pardon me there's more than one what backwards design entails in the process of shaping a syllabus in uh, in a, in designing your course backwards, if it's done correctly, mm-hmm. what you're trying to do is you're trying to think carefully and very precisely about where your student is going to arrive. What are the, what is their takeaway from this course? Now, uh, you know we you know some I've seen it on on syllabi that I've graded, so I know it's you know it's. People have this in their mind. What do you want? Again, teach this course. What's, what is one of your objectives? Well, I want my student to be more godly. <laughs> good. Good. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. That, that is a good thing to desire for your students. <laughs> um, what precisely about God do you want them to, to improve in? Mm. You know, is it is it his kindness? Is it his patience? Is it his, you know, what, what is it about him that you want them to reflect? And, and remember now, that you don't have an unlimited amount of time. You have, in in a semester system, 15 weeks, which is either uh, 30 sessions or uh, of about an hour and 15 minutes, or 60 sessions of about 50 minutes each. That's all you've got to work with. And over that period of time, can you take them to a place where they actually have achieved that outcome, that objective? And, and probably for any given course, you ought to have no more than, well, I would say six or seven objectives, more likely about five, mm-hmm. uh, in order to, to be able to give enough time to any one of them so that the, you could be sh- relatively sure that your students did it. And you have some way to evaluate it. Do, what measuring device are you going to use to determine that they actually achieved that that goal. So you, if you start with the goals and they're very specific in particular, then you can back up and look at, okay, what am I going to contribute through the classroom part? What what is uh, the authors of the textbook going to contribute through their part? Uh, what is the student going to contribute through the work that they do outside the course? And by putting all those together, you can come up with a reasonable course for your students that really takes them on a journey to in a in a direction constantly all the way through the semester. Mm-hmm. And and this is where uh, and I see this in K twelve education more than college education, although it's creeping up my way. Uh, but my wife, who teaches sixth grade, uh, is constantly facing people, you know, warning the the teachers at her middle school, you know, don't teach to the test. And she and I share the conviction that that's about the dumbest thing that you could ever tell a teacher. Uh, why, why, why would you teach away from the test? Uh, why? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> if this is the material they're supposed to know, why would you not teach them that material? You know, and do everything you can so that they master it. Precisely, precisely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the standardized testing regime is another topic for another podcast for another day. Uh, Right now, I, I want to talk about your vision of content mastery because honestly, this is an area that I hadn't thought I hadn't thought about carefully enough, and I realized that reading your book. 
you make the argument, and I think you're right, that the professor is one who is mastering the subject matter and being a master of a discipline is a matter of direction more than destination. So how did you arrive at this on-the-move concept of mastery? Well, um, now you're asking me to do uh, self-analysis, and that's a little bit uh, precarious <laughs> on its best day. But, but I would say that a part of the motivation came through uh, people that I watched along the way. Who were the professors that were the most attractive to me? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a Greek professor at our at our institution, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, marvelous uh, Christian man, and I remember it means at the peak of his of his skill, he brilliant in both Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and read everything. I mean, just I mean, he, he quoted from people that I never heard of. I'm not even sure you could find a book in our library from this person. He had to go to some other library to get it. It's just amazing guy. And I remember I was wrestling with a passage in Hebrews chapter 6. We all sooner or later bump into that one and wrestle with it. And I was proposing a solution <laughs> in, my, in my novice approach to it. And I asked him, I said, okay, well, here's how I'm wrestling with this. What do you think about it? And he gave the most wonderful answer. He said, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. And that was it. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I need to think about it. And I thought, okay. So he hasn't thought about every possible solution to the problem. He's thought about a few, probably more than I have. <laughs> well, I tell students I have this marginally criminal mind, and so maybe I came up with a solution that, you know, it might have been... Uh, it might have been heterodox, but uh, he hadn't thought about it, and he wasn't willing to give an opinion on it since he hadn't thought about it. I right. thought, okay, that's the direction I want to go. Mm -hmm. I want to be the kind of person that is willing to say, I'm not sure that I know that answer. Let me think about it some more before I just jump in and give an answer. Um, I think the second part of that came, and I'm not, this is not sequential in any way, when I graduated from from seminary, one of my mentors was a man by the name of J. Dwight Pentecost. He was my very first pastor when I became a Christian and brilliant, brilliant expositor of scripture and uh, and truly pastored me. And so, you know, I was preparing to graduate. I was pretty excited. And he said, okay, Mike, he said, uh, just one last reminder here. In just a few days, we're going to confer on you the master of theology degree. The problem will be if you believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, wise counsel. Mm -hmm. Wise counsel. I am, I am not a master of theology, and I don't know anybody who is. I'm not a master of scripture, and I don't know anybody who is. Mm -hmm. Why would we assume that someone is a master of language or any other area when we are constantly learning things about linguistics, about uh, history, about archaeology, about psychology, about the social science, what area are we not learning in? And so, you know, it, it kind of comes to you finally, we're all working. Now, I may be further down the path than most when it comes to thinking about educational and classroom matters, 
but I'm not a master of it by any means. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of how I, I came at it. Right. Well, I mean, and, and to go back to the Latin you were talking about earlier, I mean, that's a conversation I like to have with my students that, you know, master is just an anglicized short version of magister. In other words, it's not that, uh, you know, I am somehow a kingly authority over these things, but rather I've been assigned the responsibility to teach it. And yes. for that reason, I've got more motivation than most to be aware of what I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and quite frankly, you, you've bumped around in our, in the Christian circles long enough to know that when, when you, when you come to the problem passages of the Bible, the commentaries typically avoid them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you go, well, God, what did I buy that for? You know, he, he didn't help me where I needed it the most. Anybody can figure out the straightforward proposition. I needed mm-hmm. help with the problem. Right. But <laughs> So we're all facing problems that confound us. We don't, we puzzle over them. We don't know. Um, we're, we're struggling and the honest ones admit to it. The ones that are dishonest, you know, think they can pronounce on everything. But, but uh, I, I think it's I think it puts us in a conundrum when we have to uh, play the role that we have mastered something completely. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to your discussion of exams because you talked earlier about teaching units on writing exams and so on and so forth. Your discussion involves some technical discussion, and you want professors to know and deploy the differences between norm-referenced and criterion-referenced exams while they knowingly and intentionally to evaluate achievement or progress. So those are two pairs of variables. Uh, Talk us through these variables and what makes them good to know when a professor is planning an examination. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I've probably suffered as much as anybody with exams. Uh, I love that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Actually, the title of the movie was better than the movie, Total Recall. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's kind of the nature of testing, and that's all that it, it, it was about for me. It's just total recall of the information, bring it in, put it on the page, and walk out, and it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I be, was was working on my PhD and began to investigate this area, I was stunned with how much we know about testing and how little we actually implement. And mm-hmm. I've condensed a whole lot of material with those four words that uh, that kind of help us think our way through it. But but a norm reference test basically tests me against my classmates. So for example, I had a, I had a test in, uh, in accounting. Uh, I think the high school, in fact, I know the high score. was <laughs> my good friend. He scored 57 mm-hmm. midterm. Well, in order to get passing grades, the, he, had to, he had to curve everybody. Uh, and so this guy got an A plus because he had a 57 on the test. Well, it's just a lousy test is all it was. Um, but basically, all we're doing is comparing students. So in comparison to my friend who got a 57, I, I've forgotten my score, but it was probably somewhere in the 40s. Um, so we, so what did we learn? We just learned that he got a 57 and I got somewhere in the 40s, and we don't really know what we know about that. So norm reference testing doesn't help us very much 
if if uh, if you if you really work on this kind of a standardized test, you really need a very very large population, and you need a predictable kind of a format that brings people up and readies them for that test. For example, SAT tests, ACT tests. The assumption is that everybody's had a reasonable approach to these subjects before they come into this this uh, test. Well, maybe they have and maybe they haven't. Uh, when I sat for it after being out of school for 10 years, basically I got me a tutorial and ramped back up in many of the areas that I hadn't been using for a while and scored well enough on it to get into graduate school and then forgot most of it again. So the norm reference test doesn't really help. The uh, criterion referenced, uh, what you're trying to, to measure there is, do I really have this information down? Um, not where do I place in the, among the, the students that are taking the test, but how do I measure against this kind of information? That kind of a test, for example, would be given to airline pilots. Uh, uh, you know, if you want to land the plane, how many, what, what percentage can you afford to land the plane, you know, 70% of the time? <laughs> uh, no. You want the guy to be able to land the plane successfully 100% of the time, or else he doesn't graduate. And until he, until he can do it 100% of the time, every single time, he doesn't graduate. Same thing with physicians who are doing surgery, but they have to know what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. They have to know those names of things. Uh, so there is a place for criterion reference testing, and it probably ought to be administered multiple times. I don't want him to just have scored 100 hit, uh, on, on one landing. <laughs> I want him to have landed in, a, in a, some kind of a vehicle that doesn't crash. Uh, a test vehicle, uh, multiple times, multiple times. And to really get good criterion reference uh, grading, that's what you need. You need to be able to say, yeah, you know, we examined them three or four times. And they, we got it right every single time. Okay, good. We, we got that one. So that's the difference between norm and criterion referenced. Uh, the difference between uh, achievement and progress uh, progress actually measures people from where they are to where you want them to go. Uh, I've often said if, if, if they had measured progress at Dallas Seminary when I was a student, I would have got all the awards mm -hmm. because I started with nothing. I started with a zippered up King James Bible, okay, at a zippered edition my mom gave me when I left for college. And the zipper was rusted shut because I never used the thing. So I entered seminary with people who had been raised in Christian homes, great Sunday schools, uh, Christian grade schools, high schools, and Bible colleges. Uh, my goodness, you know, <laughs> but they didn't progress very much in comparison. I, on the other hand, just to give one small anecdote, uh, I remember one day my professor was talking about the Pentateuch. Well, I wasn't taking notes because I was waiting for him to talk about the Bible. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't do very good on that test. And then one day I was walking through the library and I saw this book said Pentateuch on it. I thought, well, that's a good place. I'll just stop and see what that's all about. 
<laughs> I learned that Pentateuch is about the Bible. Uh, that that was how far back in the pack I was when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's progress. You're measuring from where they start, and you have to do some kind of a pretest, or you have to have some awareness of where they are to where you want to take them. If you're measuring achievement, you don't care where they start. doesn't matter to you. All that matters to you is... Do they know X amount of material? Do, or can they can they do this task? Whatever it is that you're measuring, that you measure it at a certain level of achievement. Um, and so you you are looking at that particular thing without reference to where they started. Uh, so it's a it's a wonderful way to think about testing, if so that you know exactly what you're measuring when you create the test. Mm. Well, good. There's a question that that's been popping up on internet articles, certainly sometimes in the Chronicle of Education, sometimes in the New York Times, and it is this ongoing debate where shots are fired back and forth in defense of and against the lecture. Uh, since your chapter on lectures has lots of moving parts, I'm going to let you tell us what questions we should be asking about the lecture as a genre of classroom experience? Well, let's go back uh, to uh, to my generation, which is an older generation. In those generations, uh, people lectured uh, who shouldn't have ever been lecturing, <laughs> uh, partly because they had never worked on their speaking voice. If, if, if lecture is your primary tool, if that's your main tool for communication with your students, then it seems to me, especially if you're a Christian person, that you ought to be working on your ability to speak. Uh, I, were, were you, are you teaching something in rhetoric? Uh, did I see that on part of your work there? Oh, yes, yes. That, that's one of my specialties. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, then you, then you know. And so oftentimes we get people who know their material, but they've never worked on public speaking. And they, it's very difficult to understand them. So uh, what are you doing to improve your speaking skills would be question number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, uh, question number two is, what is that lecture designed to do? Is it just designed, or maybe it doesn't have any design at all. Maybe you're just kind of uh, prattling on about one fact after another and just kind of dribbling information across 60 minutes. Uh, but but a good lecture has a specific design. It it There are different patterns for lectures. So those who are thoughtful about them are thinking about what pattern does this have? What is it going to take? And then I would think the third question you would want to ask is, uh, what help does my lecture need? Uh, does my lecture need a, a visual support of some kind? Uh, do I need to pause in the middle of this lecture and allow the students to debrief in some way, practice what I'm speaking? talking about, having me look at what they're practicing uh, to be sure that they actually got it and can do what I'm asking. So uh, you have some kind of an, an activity to help them process it. Uh, am I pausing? 
perhaps you've had the experience of of having a professor who just talked so long and so fast that nobody could get a word in edgewise. <laughs> and uh, I actually was part of a conspiracy in one of my courses in graduate school because that's what was going on. And so there were five of us, and every 10 minutes you were called upon. To, you had to raise your hand. Mm-hmm. We didn't care. We didn't care what kind of verbal abuse you were going to take. You had to raise your hand so the rest of us could catch up and and get these notes down. Um, and there was only way to stop the person. I mean, it just went on and on, and it was unbelievable. You wondered sometimes how did they breathe? They didn't stop to, to breathe. They just talked. So what what do you need to do? How can you have important pauses uh, spaced in what you're doing? Some of the uh, material that I've read suggests, for example, that you talk no more than 10 to 12 minutes, hmm. and then and then have a pause. Some are suggesting that you not allow notes to be taken until the pause. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And then at the pause, they write down as much as they can remember, collaborate with two or three around them and make sure that they got it, then ask questions. So you're, you're, you're reinforcing uh, what has been said and giving time for assimilation until the student gets it. That's, what you have done isn't significant. It, it's measured. Your, the success of your lecture is measured by did the students really walk away with it? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you to, talk, to comment on another controversial area in contemporary education. Throughout the book, you nod periodically to online education. Sometimes you do so as a caution to new professors that there are significant things that change when you move education online. And sometimes, and I thought this was interesting, you hold up online classes as hammers to smash our academic idols. Uh, I realize this is a gigantic question, so challenge our listeners with one or two jarring thoughts about online education. Well, I can just tell you right now, it's not going away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And anybody who wants to have longevity in this profession now needs to prepare themselves for that reality. So that would be my first thought. I think, secondly, uh, online education forces us to do what we talked about earlier, and that is to think backwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you have to think about what the student is learning if I am not physically present. The assumption in previous models of education is if I am present in the room and talking, students obviously are listening because I am fabulous. (laughs) Well... (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you are, but it doesn't guarantee that those students are learning. So what online education forces us to do is to think about the learning experience that they have. One, by collaborating with other students, by commenting on things that are posted, uh, by interacting with the readings in some meaningful way. Uh, perhaps by listening to a podcast or two. So what, we have, what we're learning is that there are a lot of ways to deliver material. In the past, of course, it was uh, me, the fabulous professor, who delivered the material, and that was all that was needed. But in online education, you're not, you actually aren't even a necessary part of it. You can structure an online uh, whole educational program. Now, you, 
you or somebody needs to be evaluating what the students are doing. But in terms of information giving, that that may not even be necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, so it forces you to think about yourself differently, and it forces you to think about what your students are doing differently. Right. Uh, I, I would say the, the, the final, here's a final comment, and it particularly addresses theological education because we are persuaded that if you come to the hallowed halls of our institution, that then you will get community. And this is the missing ingredient in online education. Well, I've complained forever. Nobody listens to me. Uh, I don't blame them, actually. But I've complained that just because you come to the institution doesn't mean that you've engaged in community. Uh, association with other individuals doesn't mean community. I can go to Walmart and be around a lot of people and not have any community. And very often, we have students that do exactly that. They come to our institution. They don't build community. And so, but it's faulted that, that okay, you can't do community in online education. What we have not explored, and it's a, it's a wide open field. Somebody ought to do multiple dissertations on it. Let's take the student where they are, because that's where they want to study. They want to study at their home in their church. Okay, how are we utilizing and can we utilize the community that they already have? Mm -hmm. They have community. Somebody, if they're in a church, they have some kind of community. And have they exploited it for its maximum potential? And have they exploited it so that it reinforces their theological education? And we have not called upon their community to assist them in their theological education. So I think we've got a lot to learn about how to utilize and, and make the most of uh, this wonderful tool that's here for us and is opening up theological education and Christian education, uh, colleges, uh, Bible colleges and, and secondary schools are enlisting this as a service to them to reach more students. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating because uh, Trip Fuller, who is a, a podcast who's really coming from more of a liberal Protestant perspective than I do. Uh, he and I lock horns a fair bit, but one of the very interesting things that he's doing is precisely what you're talking about and trying to imagine what a seminary would look like if the students remained a part of the communities that are sending them rather than going off for three years and then coming back or not coming back as the case may be. So I, I will say that, uh, even if folks there in Dallas are not listening to you, there are there are folks in California who are. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, honestly, um, our online program is the, is is the one superstar of our programs right now. It's the thing that's growing. Okay. So we we cannot ignore this. We we've got to we've got to grapple with it, and and I think we ought to do it successfully because we've got every means at our disposal. To do that, they are in community. Now, you take a secular education, and he's out there, and he's studying engineering. He has no community, mm -hmm. uh, unless he's a Christian in the church. But, you know, let's say your school had a student studying, say, engineering, whatever it is, but they're in their church, and they're studying it online. Okay, how are we, how are we exploiting that community that he has to benefit his education? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we haven't we haven't really we haven't really entered that one yet. And I think that that's wide open for us. Well, good. Well, another recurring thread in this book is the field of opportunity that lies open to those who go to teach 
outside of the American system and beyond the limits of the world's great cities. Why should Christians give serious thought to teaching outside of the sphere of conventional Christian colleges that way? Um, well, first of all, uh, we have a global mandate from the Savior. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, and, and he, he, has, he has no borders uh, on the mandate. There are no gender restrictions and no age restrictions. So that would be the first one. We ought to always have our hearts and minds open to the world that is on his heart. He, he isn't just in love with America. In fact, there are probably a lot of things about America he's not in love with. But sometimes we get pretty provincial. So I would say that would be number one. Number two, the opportunities are unbelievable. They're, they're just everywhere. The, the thirst for Christian education uh, around the globe is amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, and, and a lot of it is what we would call non-formal. Uh, if you would think of informal education as something like a conversation, or maybe this podcast, somebody listening mm -hmm. to the podcast, relatively informal. Um, formal education would be the doctoral program that I teach in. Non-formal is a very structured program, but it is not necessarily leading to a degree. Man, I just can't. If you if we started to enumerate all of them, it, it would look like a telephone book because every denomination, every group is out there doing that kind of Christian education, and we ought to be a part of that. Uh, we ought to have it on our hearts and on our minds. So I think the opportunity uh, is second. Mm -hmm. uh, well, anyway, those are those are a couple of answers. I'm maybe mm -hmm. going along. Well, good, good. No, 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 that's fine. Well, Michael, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about regarding teaching, learning, Christian colleges, or what else, whatever else you prefer as we wrap up here? Yeah, okay. I'll just, just try to keep it brief uh, with and without getting sermonic, hopefully. Um uh, <laughs> It seem, and this is something that I do remind uh, my students about because they go into institutions or they go into churches and things happen and they don't know how to make sense out of it. All of us have to keep in front of us that Jesus Christ is our model. He's our model as a teacher. Uh, I think we have bowed before German scholarship and academic models way too long. And we need to come back and look at how the Savior addressed content and people and time and motivation. Uh, I love that passage in John's Gospel where the Lord Jesus in the upper room says to his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Mm -hmm. If anybody had more to say, it certainly was Jesus Christ. And sometimes we as professors take advantage of our positions to t say too much. Maybe we would be better off to say a little less and provide more opportunities for our students to engage what we're dealing with. Uh, there is a passage in Luke's gospel where the Lord uh, Jesus says, Every student will be like his teacher. 
That's really a scary thought. <laughs> if, if ultimately what I want in teaching students, regardless of content, if what I want is for them to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ, in fact, more than that, to be very like him, then it seems to me the mandate before me is just that. I have got to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I've got to be like him, and I've got to be growing closer to him day by day. Uh, and keeping that uppermost in my thoughts, that, in my judgment, transforms Christian education. It transforms uh, the role of the professor. My job is not just to instruct, but to model. And it's a scary thought, frankly. Uh, it scares the bejeebers out of me all the time. The thought that they would actually look at me and think, now, is he really reflecting the Lord Jesus in this or not? Michael Lawson, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, Nathan, you're very welcome. Delight to visit with you and to hear about you and your work and your ministry and uh I will be thinking about you, and and uh, I'll be offering a prayer for you and, and the work that you do up there. I thank you, sir. And listeners, I thank you for downloading this show. Uh, the book is The Professor's Puzzle from B&H Academic. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace serve the Lord.